0: about sharing those data
1: i'm i'm pretty open about things um i i like to share the right information with the right people um i don't just want it like stuck out on the web where anybody can access it but i also feel like i would love for like um new uh doctors in their residency to like be able to access it to learn to gain additional knowledge um I, or to like know how to treat the next generation of patients that, like, have symptoms like me. But do they need everything? Do they need, like, when I went to the dermatologist, do they need my OB stuff, like, for a muscle skeletal thing? So it's, I I think it's the right information to the right people is what I want to try to chase. That's kind of where I'm at.
2: Hello,
0: and welcome to Informatics in the Round a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics chair at Vanderbilt. I'm on Twitter at @kbj_vanderbilt KBJ Vanderbilt and on Facebook and on Podbean, which is where you can find this podcast among other sites. I hope that little teaser gave you a sense of today's topic. It's only the most requested topic we've had so far. By the way, if you want to request something, either send it out to at KBJ Vanderbilt on Twitter or go to Podbean and leave us a message under Informatics in the Round. Anyway, you asked for it, you got it. We have two of the world's experts on the topic of data privacy on the show today, Dr. Ellen Wright Clayton and Dr. Brad Malin. They're both colleagues of mine here at Vanderbilt and are incredibly generous with their time today. They had a lot of information to share with a very inquisitive and incredibly engaged group on this podcast. Brad and Ellen are a dynamic duo in the world of genomic privacy and have literally been thinking about this topic their entire careers. There is nothing we could ask them that they couldn't answer. Thank you, guys. You were honest, articulate, and as always, incredibly smart. Our other guests included an amazing singer-songwriter duo, Alyssa Abeler and Hannah Smith, also known as the Daily Fair. They were gracious enough to let us add their most recent hit song, that's what I'm predicting for them, to this episode. But even more impressive, they had a lot of stories and opinions to share about data privacy. As songwriters who tend to express emotions through their art, I wasn't sure how they'd feel about the leaking of private information. You'll enjoy hearing their thoughts about this topic, I'm sure. You'll also enjoy the song that we've stuck at the end and the song that we play a little bit of in the beginning, as well as listening to their music at www.thedailyfairmusic.com. The intro to this episode featured a co-worker and patient at VUMC, Bernadette Ruby, a senior learning experience designer and fantastic photographer from Vanderbilt. She has a very complicated medical history and is one of those people with a diagnosis so rare that everyone in medicine wants to learn from her. That comes at a price, as you'll hear. Finally, I was lucky to get Sarah Bland back on this episode. She was a firecracker. But then, when isn't she? Sarah, you rock, and you help us keep the conversation real. Thank you so much for coming on. What do we cover, you ask? De-identification, anonymization, HIPAA, by the way, not a female hippo. genomics, genetics, privacy, ethics, law, crime, minority report, and little white lies that some agencies can tell us. Yep, pretty much everything about this topic in some form. It was very, very, very informative. Okay, enough about the formalities. Hope you find this episode enjoyable.
3: So, I mean, that's pretty... That's pretty serious.
4: My side hustle. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, So when you do weddings, do you do weddings as a performer or do you help to stage and organize them?
4: Um, I used to do a lot of performing, uh, doing the music and everything. Um, but now I, I officiate. I will, I can marry people off. So um, a couple she of. Uh, did a... Cool.
0: Well, more to talk yeah. about. We'll have to get into that. Hey Alyssa, how are you?
5: Good. How are you doing?
0: Doing well. I'm Kevin, and where's Hannah? You?
5: Hannah's coming. She's grabbing something.
3: There she is.
5: There she oh. is. Hey.
0: hey guys! Oh, look at the shirt.
3: I know, isn't that
5: excellent? Yeah. I was like,
6: well, kind of fits with what's
0: happening. Yeah. Hey Bernadette.
3: Oh my God! There
1: you go. <laughs> <laughs> is that the Simpson set?
0: It is the Simpson set.
1: That's awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look. Why don't we? I'm going to start us because I know we have so little time together. So, Bernadette, since you're first, who are you?
1: Um, I am a senior learning experience designer. Um, I worked at Vanderbilt actually with Kevin for a little while, and now I'm at LifePoint Health. Um, and I manage all the corporate training and leadership training, and I also uh, and the subject matter expert on instructional design for the entirety of the organization for the 89 hospitals.
0: Yes, and you're a photographer.
1: And I'm a photographer, and a videographer, and a graphics designer, and a multimedia person, yes.
0: Yeah, artsy-fartsy, as we say. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, Alyssa and Hannah, the Daily Fair. uh, By the way, I'm excited to hear that you're northerners.
5: We are, from different parts of the north, but my name's Alyssa, I'm from Minnesota, and... I'm Hannah Smith, and I'm from,
6: well, Canada via New York, but we've both been in Nashville now for like nine years.
3: (laughs) Well, great. Uh, Ellen. I'm Ellen Clayton. I've been at Vanderbilt for 32 years now. I am a pediatrician law professor in the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society. So and I work a lot with Brad and Kevin and Sarah.
7: Hey Brad, who are you? That's the question I ask myself every day.
3: <laughs>
7: <laughs> um. And right so. Uh, so I'm I'm Brad Mallon. I'm uh by day, I'm a professor of biomedical, informatics, biostatistics, and computer science at Vanderbilt. And uh, by night, I, uh, I co-direct a, a center of excellence from the National Institutes of Health with, with Ellen that focuses on uh, privacy and identity as it pertains to uh, our genetic information.
0: Let's see. As everybody said me, I'm Kevin Johnson. No, Sarah. Uh,
4: Sarah, Sarah Bland. Sarah Bland. <laughs> I'm, just the
0: the, I'm just loving the new haircut.
4: Thank you. Yeah. I uh, yellowed and, and said, why not during COVID? Uh, so Sarah Bland, project manager in uh, biomedical informatics. Um, I work uh, mostly on the Emerge project, uh, which is putting genetic information into the medical record um, and then also work on family history, putting that into the medical record and with Consuelo Wilkins on health disparity research. Um, in precision medicine.
0: Thank you. And and Sarah has been on a few of these because she's just so fucking funny.
4: <laughs>
2: I
0: mean, it's just <laughs> I mean, There it is. She always pulls back, you know, never says anything. Um, so I'm Kevin Johnson. I'm a pediatrician. I am the head of the podcast, and I'm kind of the creative, geeky person who came up with this idea of a way to showcase some topics in a way that everybody who's not on this call and, the, and our guests can understand. You know, the whole idea of this is for us to have a low-key conversation that is entertaining and edifying, and um, that's it. So today, I'm going to start out by slightly embarrassing Al- Alyssa and Hannah, if I can make
2: it. Fabulous. The- Challenge accepted.
0: <laughs> okay, here it is. Ready? And let's see now. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Did you guys hear anything? No.
1: Oh,
5: there it goes. Tell us about this song, which I love. Thank you. I am down to the river. And it's just as loud in real life <laughs> as she is in this city. To wash away your sins. This the song actually on the side of a mountain,
2: driving But no man of that sweet water would really, really, really do my
6: best. And uh, basically, so I went down to the church. House. guitar along with us, and she was playing the song. And uh, this is basically me ranting in almost exactly the we, uh, we went and we shot on my family's former farm, and uh, it just—it felt so suitable to. Story I was
5: telling. Yeah, ooh, ooh, this was
6: the first um, thing ever put out? Right.
5: Who did the video? Our friend Tommy Stanley, who's also a local guy um, that we met. Too. I pulled down through the water. He did. done
2: both of
5: the music videos on
2: our YouTube. Well,
0: as much as I hate to do this, I'm going to encourage everybody to look at this. But for now, I'm just going to say it's really amazing and. What I love is, I mean, are, so now you guys are not really Christian artists, right? Or are you?
5: We don't no. say we don't say that about our music. I don't know, it's kind of, we, we both profess faith, I had a mentor but...
6: once tell me, he was like, you can make a bigger impact in people's lives if you don't label it in certain mm-hmm. ways.
5: And so mm-hmm. the fact
6: that, you know, our own faith resides where it does, um, doesn't impact how we communicate with people and how we love people and how we tell stories.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. That's actually an interesting segue for today. It's funny how that worked out. Um, and I am going to play the piece that you sent me at the end for everybody to, to have a listen to. But I wanted us to know we're among some real honest-to-goodness artists here. You guys are fantastic. Your harmonies were amazing. I, I attempt to sing, but I would never sing in your presence. because you guys <laughs> I are bet great.
5: you're great. Why, thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you very much.
0: What I wanted us to talk about today is a very sensitive topic in some ways, but many, many people since we started the podcast have brought it up. Um, In 1999, um, there is this guy named Scott McNeely, who worked with Sun, who made a point of saying in a magazine, privacy, get over it. And it was kind of the beginning of this whole movement of people who have been more and more worried about their privacy, thinking that pretty much privacy is over. Um, Pew Research Foundation did a study that said that, you know, somewhere between six and 10 Americans believe that there's no way not to have their identity tracked everywhere they go and that, um, that most people these days feel that their privacy is essentially gone. On the same time, you know, we've got, we've got um, things like the COVID pandemic, where we need the data. We have research. Some people who have illnesses have data within themselves that might actually lock, unlock the cure for their disease. And I know, Bernadette, you've, you've had some issues in your health past. And I'm curious... Do you feel comfortable talking about them and talking about how you feel about sharing your data?
1: Yeah, um, so I'm kind of in a unique space. Um, I was born with what's called clippophile syndrome. Um, and what that is, is the vertebrae in your neck should all function individually, right? But instead like they're deformed and they're kind of mashed together. So I don't have quite full range in my neck. When I was born, they hadn't figured out what it was that it was tied to a gene. Um, and now they have, but, and now they've linked all these other medical conditions with it. So I've also got missing and deformed vertebrae in my back. I've got heart murmurs. I've got um, digestive tract things going on. I've got springle shoulder. My legs are two different lengths. Like, I mean, like if it's out there, I probably like have it as far as muscle skeletal stuff goes. Um, I move, I also moved 16 times in 18 years growing up. Uh, my father was military and then he did government contracts afterwards. So not only do I have like encyclopedia volumes worth of information for my medical history, it's scattered all over the world, literally at hospitals. Um, and some of those have closed and some doctors have moved on to other things. And so trying to get a hold of those are kind of crazy. So how, I, so
0: how do you feel about sharing those data?
1: I'm, I'm pretty open about things. Um, I, I like to share the right information with the right people. Um, I don't just want it like stuck out on the web where anybody can access it. But I also feel like, I would love for, like, um, new uh, doctors in their residency to, like, be able to access it, to learn, to gain additional knowledge. Um, Or to, like, know how to treat the next generation of patients that, like, have symptoms like me. But do they need everything? Do they need, like, when I went to the dermatologist, do they need my OB stuff? Like for a muscle skeletal thing. So it's, I think it's the right information to the right people is what I want to try to chase.
5: That's kind of yeah. where I'm at.
0: So Alyssa and Hannah, I see you guys nodding up a storm. How do you feel about all this?
5: So I have a similar, not a similar um, condition Bernadette, but I, I had a very intense eye surgery back in 2013 um, to remove part of my iris. Cause I had a melanoma in my eye. <laughs> Um, yeah, and actually the, there were um, several doctors at Vanderbilt that while I was living here were monitoring it up to the time of the surgery. That's information that I think is very essential to have, but I don't know what else people may have of mine at this point. Right? Does that, does that bother you? I think I'm a, a bit of a realist, pessimist side person where I think that if you want that information, you're going to get it if you have the ability to do so. So I'm, I'm kind of of the mentality that privacy is going to be very different the more technology increases. So I'm, I don't know if it bothers me personally, but I do think it probably has a greater effect on a lot of other people.
0: I've, I'm curious. So Ellen and Brad, one of the things that you've, and, and of course, Sarah, what you all have worked on at Vanderbilt has actually been trying to come up with ways that we can generate knowledge, actually learn from data without having a preconceived hypothesis. Typically, that means we wanna get all the data from these patients in as much detail as they're comfortable giving them to us. Do, do you hear often this, this question of, I'm willing to let you have certain data, but not other data, and how do we deal with that?
3: So, well, I'm gonna take a stab at it first. I think, first of all, it's important to know that a lot of data are used, health-related data are used for research um, after they've had a lot of identifying data removed. And a lot of that is done actually uh, with, at least at Vanderbilt with permission, but without elaborate consent. And I think the tension that we run into here is that on the one hand, we can do a pretty good job of protecting an individual's identity in in our big data sets, even in genomics, and do a lot of discovery with them. But to do that and and really protect identity, we also lose the ability to go back and tell people what we find, at least about them personally. And what we see a lot is that people want to have their identity protected, but they also want information back. And those things are really in almost, they are intention that really can't completely be um, alleviated. So. We spend a lot of time talking about how do we tell people that we want information, that we want to use it for discovery, and that the goal is to do knowledge that's really going to help people in the future, we certainly hope. But the transitional part between the research and actually implementing it clinically is is actually a step that has to be taken in a really uh, thoughtful way. And you can't have both things at the same time. It's a process of trans- translation from one to the other.
0: But you know, obviously there's people in the community who may have a lot of distrust from, yeah. from, because of that.
4: Yeah, this is a conversation I had uh, just a couple of weeks ago um, as I was thinking about um, Tennessee and some of the laws that we have been seeing pop up or bills pop, um, pop up. You know, I'm in the LGBT, LGBT community. Um, I have a wife. And, you know, that means that it could be used against me eventually for our insurance, for our uh, ability to know more about um, what's going on with each other's care. If the Tennessee wanted to enact any kind of discriminatory law. And so while privacy is really important, there's a lot of areas that it's been used against us in different um, avenues, like with minority populations. And so there's a lot of distrust in those populations. Consuela Wilkins just put a paper out just a couple of weeks ago that talks about how African-Americans really feel uncomfortable um, being a part of research studies, especially when the entire research team is white and when they don't really know if it's going to be beneficial to them. You know, you have to think about that when you're thinking about handling data that people don't really understand what that means necessarily. What does it mean that you have my data? What does that mean? What, is, does, what does it look like? Um, especially if they don't understand what the end result's going to be.
0: So Brad, Scott was wrong, right? I mean, privacy is not dead. You certainly... I'm a, you know, I am an executive at Vanderbilt, I'm gay, but I'm pretty willing to give my data to people for use in research. Should I, be, should I be afraid?
7: Depends on what you think you need to be afraid of. Privacy is highly contextual. And so I wouldn't say that we're complete exhibitionists or have become voyeurs to the point where everybody's looking at all the information all the time and everybody's having all their information collected all the time by everyone. It's challenging to kind of tease apart what people are talking about when they're actually saying that their privacy is going away or that they don't believe in privacy. And one of the reasons is, is that privacy means many different things. And so if we're, all we're talking about is what happens when information leaves you at all, then you know, there, there are some challenges with being able to protect against the shedding of data on a daily basis. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean that, that the, it, it's impossible to protect and that society doesn't want to have protection. It just happens to be that at, as we see new technologies get adopted and we see more people adopting those technologies specifically, that initially there's, there's an expectation that the information is going to be there and we're going to do really great things with it. And then over time, I think there's this realization that We don't necessarily need to have all the information on all the people all the time. And that technology evolves and society evolves and new types of controls get put in place. And so even though you may have the ability to collect data, there may be ways of defending against it. And there may also be decisions that society makes that there are times at which we don't collect that information. And I think a good example of that in modern society is is what's been going on over the last couple of weeks, where we've seen not necessarily a moratorium issued against face recognition technology, but the realization that this type of information collection and use is not necessarily the direction that our society wants to go in its current form. And so you not only have uh, companies like IBM stopping their research into the technology, but you have a a push, uh, almost, almost congressionally, I believe to, Have uh, controls put on the technology.
3: Institutions like Vanderbilt and actually all major research institutions and many others have strong incentives to try to think about how to protect data Um, because the last thing we want to see is that there's been a major data breach or something like that has happened. And similarly, I think that some of the really big companies are under increased, like Google and, and others, are coming under a lot of pressure and scrutiny because of people's concerns. And so I think that there will be, so I just want to amplify Brad's point, which is that uh, we can talk about what's technically possible to do with world enough in time and all the resources that you could conceivably think of. But I think that it's also important to realize that people who are stewards of data, I like that word stewardship, that they better be really pretty careful about that. When I teach confidentiality to the medical students, I have a picture of somebody in a white coat, and then I put a picture of a black hole over their stomach. And I say, you know, basically, once you put this coat on, you become the black hole. Now, there are a lot of things, unlike a black hole, that get get out of it. But your default position is, if you hear something from a patient, it stays with you, um, unless there's an excuse for it. And that's got to be where, and, and I, I think that that is a powerful factor in what we're seeing currently.
4: Yeah, I uh, I would agree with, with what you just said, Ellen. Um, and I think it, Brad, I want you to kind of bring this item up. You, you talked to me a few weeks ago about HIPAA and <laughs> so what you know, the issue with HIPAA is.
0: And what is HIPAA? For every, I think HIPAA, you know, half the community thinks it still has two Ps in it. So what right. if,
3: it's not a female hippo. <laughs> <laughs> I've
7: never heard that. Well, it's also as a lot of people think it. You know, sometimes they refer to it as a four-letter word, but it's a five-letter acronym. You know, it's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, which is which is actually quite intriguing because it was uh, it was brought forward to try to standardize all of the collection and sharing of information used in the context of health insurance payments, but um, it then eventually evolved to have its own privacy and security rule associated with it, which, was, which is really actually quite intriguing because when, when HIPAA first came out, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States, but there was no privacy or security rule. And then they tried to get it passed within Congress. It, it didn't pass. And then after he left, everybody said, well, that's going to be the end of privacy and security. It's never going to happen. It turned out that when George Bush came into office, uh, he he ended up being a pretty strong proponent for for medical privacy, which was which was quite surprising to the point where he basically said that if Congress couldn't get it passed, that um, it would fall to um, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services yeah. to promulgate uh, a, a rule, which which ended is ended up that's what happened. But it's interesting because you ended up with with Congress setting the law, and then you have HHS setting these rules. And at times, they're in, they're, they're in conflict with one another, um, and mainly because they came out of two different groups. Policy and, and law is an interesting thing, right? It, it, does, it serves two purposes. On, on one side, it, it codifies the expectations and the beliefs of society such that, such that it says, like, these are the boundary conditions. Um, you know, and we all agree that these are the boundary conditions, and if you violate them, then we have the ability to ostracize and penalize you in whatever way we see fit. And then there's the flip side of it, which says that we also know that there are markets that govern society and that if the markets have the ability to get out of whack, then we set policy and we set law to try to create some type of a level playing field or or reorientation of the market to ensure that it doesn't exploit all the individuals and the companies within society. And, And the unfortunate part, though, I think with HIPAA is that it meant well. The privacy rule meant well in that it, it really tried to say that there were rights that individuals had with respect to their data in terms of, you know, you can request an accounting, you can, you can uh, get access to information. Unfortunately, I also think it, it created loopholes with respect to data specifically. And and one of those was that they, they created this definition of, of, of de-identified information, which to be honest with you, I think is one of the worst words ever created. Because when you think about it, it's de-identified. It's five syllables. And and that is just way too many to try to describe what is a principle by which we use to manage all of our health information. But basically what it says is that if you de-identify the information, then the individual to whom the data corresponds has no rights with respect to that information. And the organization that collected it can do whatever they want. And in particular, what's happened is that we've we've seen a, I, I don't, know if it's become multi-billion but it's definitely close to it in terms of a, a market for the sharing of data about uh, health data right. about individuals now there's questions about whether or not it's readily identifiable or identifiable and hopefully it's not but it's not a market that should probably exist and yeah. so this is a really strange situation because now people when they argue about privacy sometimes they're talking about confidentiality they're saying i'm concerned that um, somebody 's going to collect information without my permission, but then there 's also this 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 uh, complication in that people believe that there 's intellectual property and they they relate that to privacy and that that 's information about me and you 're going to commercialize it and I get nothing out of it in return that 's a violation of my rights and you violated my privacy in order to get that information and and this conflation of these two ideas I think becomes problematic but the way that we've set up law in the United States, I think has created a situation where it's, been, it's become difficult to tease these apart. So
0: Bernadette, as one of the people who's got a lot of information out there and don't, don't want it all disclosed, how does all this make you feel? What does, it make, what does it make you think about?
1: It gives me a little anxiety because I, like I said, kind of towards the beginning, I want to get the right information to the right people. Um, the idea that anybody can just go in and grab whatever they want doesn't seem fair. I mean, like, if you're counting how many people have COVID, like, I get the necessity to, like, quantify that and see what the spreading of those numbers are, but, like, my health concerns and like situations are so unique that even if you strip my name off of it the physicians that have worked directly with me would still be able to know oh I've seen that case before I know who that is it's not like I'm just like every other person walking down the road and so like I think that like in a I think in most circumstances I think that like it would be easy to de-identify it but like I'm not one of those so like I mean in a prime for instance somebody de-identified my medical record specifically on my spinal surgery and it landed in a medical journal and my uh, surgical person uh, my surgeon found the article and said did you approve this because he Uh did the surgery he didn't even know that it was out there um so i mean the idea of like and that's what's interesting is because it was such unique surgery and i'm super unique that it was still identifiable, even though it was
6: de-identified.
0: Well, you know, both you and Alyssa have the same problem. I think ocular melanoma is not the most common thing I've ever heard of.
5: Before the surgery was done, she had to agree it would be in a medical journal. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know if they required it. It was strongly encouraged. But I was happy to provide that because it's such an under... Hers was the longest documented case they had ever seen.
6: Mm
0: -hmm. Jeez. Well, you know, Brad and Ellen um, have been recently... Trying to help us realize, like exactly what you guys deal with, the issues um, around how much data about COVID can an institution share, without it actually really not being de-identified.
7: COVID. Let me take a step back for a second to address something that Bernadette said first before I forget it, um, which is that um, I believe the majority of people in the world are an N of one, in terms of that what their is combination. A What's right. I mean? Yeah, the, the combination of conditions and, and demographics about the individual is likely to uniquely represent them in, in any place they go. And um, the extent to which an, an individual is going to be recognized within the data is, is partially dependent on two things. One, it's dependent upon how they present themselves within the world and also the knowledge that people have about them from the outset. So the fact that your clinicians or your docs would know you, that's an expectation. It's an expectation because they've been exposed to something that was sensitive about you in, in an intimate manner. And, and you, you let them in at that point, right? And, and so then, then there's the question, though, of, uh, I'll be honest, if I had looked at your medical record, I would have had no idea that it was you, uh, unless you had had a conversation with me to explain these things to me. And this is why I, say, why I say that these issues become very contextual, right? There are times when people know things and they can exploit them, and then there are times when, when other people are not exposed to that information can't. This relates pretty strongly to what's going on with COVID, in that um, one of the things that, that we've seen is that it's, an, it's quite a unique phenomenon in that a lot of people have felt the need to tell everyone that they're COVID positive. <laughs> and... <laughs> It's it's really crazy um, because because this doesn't happen um, with a lot of other with a lot of other clinical phenomenon. Um, it does happen for some people, for but for some strange reason, um, I don't know if it's because people are searching for camaraderie or they believe it's a badge of of uh, courage. But but this notion of disclosure um, has created a situation where people say, look, I tested positive or I haven't tested negative, which has its own implications. And, and then um, once they say that, once you reveal this information, you're making yourself part of a club. And it actually would make it easier for me to recognize you within one of these data sets because now I see, okay, well, I look at the demographics for this person. If there's only one person with those demographics, when I go look at data that Vanderbilt has shared, if they're the only person with those features, then I go, oh, that was John Prime right that there's a there's a perfect example but then but then you have the situation where if somebody doesn't disclose right but the information is made public that there was somebody who was positive and you reveal the factors about that person all their demographics then there may actually be a lot of people who are out in the community that might look like that and this is not an encouragement to tell people to not be public about what's happened to them but it's an example of how this type of disclosure ends up making it more difficult to actually protect people's privacy. And so when people take it upon themselves to be open, they, that's totally within their right to do so. It's just that it has downstream ramifications. So when you're trying to create a data sharing model that says, well, I want to put COVID-19 data out into the world, you have to think about the implications of this and that if all I was to share was information about COVID-19 and you have chosen to self-disclose it, no problem. If, on the other hand, I'm going to share the entire medical history about this individual, in addition to the fact that they're COVID-19 positive. Which is what we
0: need, by the way, to help develop therapies.
7: Right. But the, you know, lots of things can get caught up in that. So it could be that the individual had a sexually transmitted disease, or that the individual had an indication of uh, some type of abuse that they committed or other people committed against them that wasn't necessarily made public, but was documented within the medical record. This is where the collateral damage really starts to come into play. So you, it becomes a, a, tr- a balancing act, though.
3: I want to jump in here and just make a couple of points. One is that we need to be clearer as we collect information and as we are getting ready to share it. I mean, particularly in some of these programs that have you know, consent at the front end. One of the things that we may want to consider is telling people that, you know, if they go out and talk about their condition or that they've had COVID or they have whatever, that 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 potentially makes them more identifiable within the data set. But the question that I have about that is: so then are you saying that people who do that kind of self-disclosure, which they do for a lot of reasons, for support, for you know, many things. Does that mean that they somehow are assuming the risk that they're going to be re-identified? Clearly, that's a problem. Um, or to, take
0: that, to take that to another level, had the police here been allowed to to let people to have access to COVID positivity for people that they might arrest, was that a way to actually compromise the electronic health record in kind of a weird, subversive way?
4: I'd, well, yeah, I'd I
3: mean, like to take a stab at wrote- that since we wrote an editorial saying that the police shouldn't have access to COVID data. um, I mean, I feel pretty strongly about that. Um, On the other hand, you know, the other part of the solution has got to be thinking about how to prevent uses that, um, that adversely affect people if, you know, if information about them comes out. You can't consent to adverse use. That's not okay. What we have to do is realize that fixing adverse use is part of the problem and part of what we have to be dealing with. That's not particularly within the purview of the medical profession, right. but it sure is within the purview of us as a society.
0: Very much like me using Alyssa and Hannah's songs without their consent.
4: Yeah. 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 So, I would I would like to point out that um, my background's public health. And so what I've thought about as far as you know the COVID data is that people are willing to disclose for the greater good. They recognize that in public health, there comes a point in time where disclosing this information and letting people know so that you can prevent the the spread is helpful. Like wearing a mask, you know, it's not a political thing. Um, we do that also on the back end with um, STIs. We report to the state how many STI infections that we um, see so that they can monitor if there becomes a spike in chlamydia or a spike in herpes in the state for the greater good. Makes sense. Um, public health has been doing this for a while. But I think it goes back to the intent, that if the intention is for the greater good, that's one thing. but 23 and me selling data to pharma is that really the greater good
6: so i have refused to do the test i'm like here's the truth if anybody in my family should figure out our genetic situation it's my parents not me so since i am the product of my parents if they want to do it they can do it and therefore my genes are still trackable that for me is just a personal choice i'm open if someone asks me my medical history i'm more than happy to tell them but I did used to work in the medical field, not as like a scientist or anything, but I was the one collecting all the data from the patients, Mm. all the very, very personal information. And because I am a personable person, people were more willing to tell me that stuff. And then I'm not gonna lie, don't sue me. There are some things I would not put in their records simply because I did not think it was anybody's business to know this. It felt like farming information.
2: That's and it felt so
6: wrong to me. I don't want to do a 23 me because I just know that's a possibility and I do not care for that. That's not something I'm giving permission for.
0: So you remind me of the guy who fills out our taxes because he, every time we fill out our, 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 you know, 1040, he says, why are you filling in things like, let's say, you know, how much money you've put into dependent care when you know you make too much money for you to get anything back? That should be null, and my view of it is eh, it's just a number. And he's like it's not, it's information they don't need, and on the one hand, that makes sense. But now, if you're trying to figure out a cure for clipophile or, or f- trying to figure out whether there's some you know there's some epigenetic which basically means things that happen after you're born, reasons why the disease could be better or worse, you're censoring the information, so you're actually making it harder for me as a researcher. try to find potentially associations between, you know, subtle findings that you may not think or I may not think are relevant, but that it turns out when you mine the data of every single patient, they turn out to be interesting.
7: You're you're getting me riled up, Kevin. I'm trying to. No,
6: I've got stuff coming to you, like
7: A good example.
6: (laughs) I completely understand what you're saying, but there still has to be a volunteer level. Like. And understanding, like you're talking about the black hole, the doctor becomes the black hole. Well, at some point, there should be a conversation on one side or the other saying, hey, I just want you to know, because of these things, I would like your permission to be able to use that. I think it might be relevant at some
7: point. Also, not everybody wants to go into the black hole, right? And and if they think they're going to get sucked into the black hole, they'll start taking evasive maneuvers which is that they'll stop telling people things and
3: they'll yeah. stop telling
7: their clinicians. Thing, you know, and that, <laughs>
3: um,
7: Bernadette's pointing at herself. Go ahead.
1: I go to the doctor and if I get like this laundry list of six pages that I'm supposed to fill out and all I'm going in for is a cold, I'm not giving you a whole medical history. Like I, I am that person. I'm like, no, you really don't need to know all that. I'm like, yeah, I got a heart condition. So like, let's not prescribe like some medicines, but, I'm not, I'm not going to write everything out. There's no reason why a PA at a walk-in clinic needs to have my entire medical history. I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not going to spend the time doing it and there's no need for them to know that.
7: So as, as somebody who, who does research with medical records in a, in a retrospective manner, one of the things I tell my students is that when you, when you see something in the medical record, you might be able to trust that. If you don't see an indication of it, Chances are uh, you would have no idea if they failed to have a diagnosis or if it was just not reported, and you have to be really careful when you start looking at records this way. But this notion of evasive maneuvering, you know, on one side, I, I believe that individuals have the right to uh, hold back information, and this is the, the fundamental notion of privacy, which is the ability to control information about oneself. And and if you so choose to do so, then. That's, that's your right. Now, if, if it has the potential to infringe upon the well-being of others, this is where I think that we might start having potential conflicts between individuals' rights and societal rights. And so if, if this is information that, as, as, as Bernadette has pointed out, like if she withholds this information, if she's only hurting herself and she recognizes that, I'm not saying that you are trying to hurt yourself, but yeah, it, right it did turn that way. In, in many respects, that's, that's her prerogative. You know, if I withhold information about the fact that I'm COVID-19 positive, I walk out into the street and I start touching every single person that I come across and then I don't tell them, that's a problem, right? And that that is where individual rights may actually start to break down. I
1: just think there needs to be like a level of permission. Like the idea that like my medical stuff showed up in a medical journal, like I would have been happy to say, yeah, go for it. Like people need to learn. Let's like learn from each other. But like... I would have liked at least the courtesy of, hey, we'd like to do this, would you be okay with? Right, and so I, I don't know, yeah.
3: I'm actually pretty surprised that you they didn't ask for your permission. I mean, because that's really pretty common. That's really pretty uh, common
1: these days. They got a pretty good hand slap. What?
3: I said they got their hand slapped. Uh, yeah, so. well, I'm sure they did, but it, um, that's really pretty, pretty doggone uncommon. I mean, one of the things that makes this level of permission difficult is that for the last several years, it's been a requirement from the NIH that if we get funding and collect data about patients, that they have to agree not only to, for whatever it is that they're being, the research is about, but that anybody in the future can use it as well to study any other problem. There are a few exceptions to that, but really not very many. And it initially started in the area of, you know, genetics and genomics. But there's a proposal that was issued last year that would actually make a condition of any NIH funding, um, that any data that we get, and it's not only, you know, the stuff that's in your medical record, but I would think I do a lot of social science research, as does Brad. And I ask people stuff. Right now, we're asking a whole bunch of LGBTQ people about what they think about uh, genetics research. We've interviewed 31 people. We've gotten a huge array of opinions about what they think is good about it and what they think is bad about it. You'll not be surprised to know that there's a big array, but there's, you know, huge interest. And actually what they mostly say is we're so glad you ask us because nobody's asked us what we think about this. But the idea of this sort of broad consent for data sharing that's now virtually a requirement of getting funding, you know, is a big issue for us. And among the things it's going to require is even greater Care and stewardship by the data holders and the researchers.
0: Do You think most patients know that there is this mandate that we have for data sharing?
4: Hell oh, no, boy no. no. Come on, That's a consent form. No.
7: Not
3: that anybody reads those things, but
7: I'm um, not convinced that all investigators understand
4: it either. Yeah, um, I was going to say. With you. I so, no, we, no. We, most so, patients don't know.
1: Right, and devil's advocate for a minute, how many people walk in with a sixth grade reading level or speak yeah. a second language and don't even read the form, but they realize that it's they're supposed to sign the bottom? Like, how how are we double checking to make sure that they're getting the care, like that they're understanding the documents that they're signing and that they're being explained to, like, and like the implications of what that is?
0: I was at the doctor a couple of weeks ago and the lady said to me, I heard her say it, Dr. Johnson, there's a form here you have to sign. So I felt like I understood everything. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <Brad's> like, <"Really?" laughs> no,
4: no. How, how do we get him to be taken off this call? And we'll just all continue.
3: I will say that one of the times that I went recently, because I was involved with um, developing the consent process for our de-identified genetic database, that one of the recent times I went to the doctor, they not only did not give me the form, they gave me one of those little things like you sign at the Kroger, you know, and it just, there's just a line for your signature that says, I acknowledge that I've read this. <laughs>
6: I just lost. that same thing happened to me and I, I've straight up, because I've done this, I just wanted to know, because you can ask. I went up and I said, um, can I please have the printed material to read this? Did because
0: they, no, they have it. Did they have it for
6: you? It takes people back. Like you can't just offer somebody to sign this, to sign their life away to you when you really have no idea, you know. They always say, "My mom is a stickler for it. Always read the fine print." Yep. And um, I'm finding so often because we have talked about this with quite a few people that they've never ever read the consent forms.
7: <laughs> so there's a there's a great study. There's a great story study that that. Uh, Alicia McDonald and Lori Craner had done almost almost 15 years ago that looked at how many end user licensing agreements or terms of service you come across on a daily basis while browsing the internet or using your phone. And it was found that if you you took the time to read all of those documents, it would actually be more time than the actual minutes that exist in a day. So all the things that you do in the day, you literally cannot read it all. It is impossible. There, there is a push to try to simplify this, but it is, unfortunately, when people call these privacy policies, what they really mean is that they're cover your legal ass type of policies for these companies, and that they're not really designed to be in the interest of the individual. They're designed to show the point at which you sever your responsibilities with respect to that person, or when you've proven that they've signed away things to you. Like I said, that's always the case. but
6: Yeah, well, and there's a large fear I've also found with people who sign it out of fear for not being treated. What do, you, what do you do if someone doesn't sign it, you know?
0: Yeah, and I mean, your point being, there are people who are legitimately sick. I mean, it's not like they can either see well or control themselves well, but the, the forms are sequenced in a way that you really only get one shot at it, and it's before you get care. It doesn't have to be that way. We can... Many places will bring the forms in during your visit or wait until somebody else can come and explain them. I will confess that now that we've gone electronic, it gets a little trickier because these systems have hard stops, which means if a form's not signed, you often can't go to the next step in the care process, whereas in the old days, they would have skipped it and they would have brought a clipboard back to you and said, can you please sign these forms and you get a chance, so. So I have to ask another question. I know we're, we're not gonna have a ton of time. I wanted to cover this. I noticed that you guys are not, so I'm looking at at and Hannah now, not all that comfortable with 23andMe. And that means that you might possibly have some concern about genetic data being even more of a problem. Is that a fair statement?
5: Um, we have differing opinions on this. Oh, do tell.
4: Somewhat, somewhat. Pray tell. Yeah. Do you want to go first? <laughs>
5: um, so I'm I'm a much less private person. Okay. Than than Hannah is, and actually we're not. Um, we've been in a band together for ten years, mm-hmm. almost eleven. So we've lived a lot of life together. We're not together, and a lot of people just assume that we are, which is always really interesting because we do. We're each other's emergency contacts. We do go to each other's doctor's appointments if they're you know of a, a certain. Su- like seriousness or whatever. All of our family, immediate family members, pretty much live out of state. So we are basically, for all intents and purposes, each other's domestic partners. So there's a certain level of trust that's been built up over time. Now with the 23andMe stuff, I don't have a lot of things that I don't care, uh, that I feel people shouldn't know about me. I'm pretty open book.
0: Bernadette, how about you?
1: I don't know. Uh, I, I'm kind of torn on it. I feel like and maybe this is just my ignorance, it's that like when you get down into that genetic level, it's not like my bone deformities where like somebody could recognize it like from one strip of DNA to the next when somebody's just looking down a sheet of it, like are they really going to know who it is? I guess my concern would be is like negative usage of it later down the road. So like, they want to come after me because I'm the cure for something that like, that would be like the only thing that I would be, have any real hesitancy towards it. It's like, is there any real reason to fear it? Like, is there an, is there going to be an adverse or could there be an adverse?
3: I have to say that of all the things about me that are out there or that might potentially be out there, I am a lot. I actually usually when I do this, do a slide and I, have genetic information and my social media stuff, and I don't know how many Google hits there are of me, but a lot. I've written a lot. I've been, you know, at the end of the day, I am less worried about my genetic uh, makeup than just about anything. I mean, and the truth is, there are some things about my genetic makeup that I don't want to know, and so it would provoke me if someone else found out and told me about them.
1: Just watch too many sci-fi movies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I,
7: I think I think the future has yet to be completely written in this regard. I don't believe that we know all of the potential uses of genomic information. I think people were expecting it to be much more fatalistic and deterministic than it has actually become. but every day there are new studies there are new association studies. I worry that there will be misappropriation with respect to genomic information in that it will it will be used in studies that are not used necessarily against the individual, but against groups of individuals. I, I, there, was a, there was a really strange study that came out of, of UK Biobank and 23andMe last year, looking at the relationship between genomic variants and an individual's sexual predisposition. And it was such an unbelievably flawed investigation that it made you really worry about how people are trying to use genomic information to, to give storylines and potentially societal shifts that I, I don't believe should occur. But the, the other issue that I'd point out here with respect to individuals is that um, I think people should recognize that at least in the U.S. we do have law that is designed to be preventatory with respect to discrimination based on genomic information. Um, however, there's a law with a lot of holes in it, but, but it, it, it is a recognition, at least that there is something to be protected for an individual. Whether or not you have to worry about things that go bump in the night, the way I look at this is, is that if, if people are going to find ways to take information and use it against it against you or against society or try to use it for insurance related purposes in the future, it will be done. And so it's just a matter of, uh, you know, to what extent can we actually get a handle
3: on it? Well, that really goes back to the point that I made earlier, that at least part of the solution is to figure out what rules we need to do to govern use. Because, you know, people will be, I mean, people will, um, will try to hurt other people. I mean, we see this on a daily basis. So, but I think our obligation is to, you know, is to try to figure out how to control that and how to try to prevent those misuses.
0: Can one of you just tell everybody what the message was from the UK study so that, because we have four LGBT people here, they wanna know the answer.
7: Short version was that they were trying to show that there were genetic variants that were indicative of sexual predisposition. And so, you know, in terms of saying that, that you were born this way, right? And that it's not so much a nurture issue, it's a nature issue and and the problem with this is, is that we know, all the research has shown, it's a much more complex situation, right? There, there is, there, you can't reduce it simply to genetic code that says that you're gay or you're lesbian or you're queer. It, it's not black and white in that regard.
3: Well, not and only that, they defined, they defined the group as, as whether they'd had one same-sex experience in their whole life or not. Ever,
7: right? Ever. Ever,
3: that. Which which
7: was crazy. I, know, I mean, I oh, Sarah's not going to say it. I'm going to say it. I mean, come on, who hasn't? Come had on, that
4: everybody has.
7: Okay, show a <laughs> hand. I'm just kidding. Um.
4: <laughs> Take a poll.
5: <laughs> yep, yep, I didn't yep. send my form. You can't see my hand.
7: Hey, Ellen. I know. You I mean, have... Look, I see Daniel Craig walk out of the water, and I'm just like, I mean,
0: Bernadette. What's the difference between genomic and genetic? Don't know. Hannah, Elisa, any idea?
5: Uh, is genomic the actual code, and then genetic is your like the how it presents
7: heritable relationship yeah precisely right but but a lot of people get confused by it and they use them interchangeably and and they don't mean the same thing sarah
0: any final words
4: i go back to the um the comments that i made about intent you know i think yeah you know i mean the golden state killer is a great example of of privacy that sure, it's great that that guy was caught, but do we want law enforcement to have all of our information, like what happened in Tennessee with um, COVID data going to the police um, or the law enforcement um, departments? I think it goes back to intent. And if you don't know what a company's intent is, you start to feel a little uncomfortable with that data being out there.
7: I think the Golden State Killer case, I wish we had more time to delve into this, is one of the scariest precedents that has been set yeah. within our society in a long time. Because Why? short version of the story was that you had millions of people who were taking their 23andMe results and, and other sequencing results and putting them into an environment where they could look for people who were relatives. And it was done behind, sort of behind closed doors. You had to like, create an account and get in there. And then the FBI ended up taking DNA from a cold case. I mean, many cold cases. The guy killed a lot of people but they took DNA that they didn't know who he was and they put it into the system masquerading as if they were him. And then they ended up finding a third or fourth cousin that they then went to and then reconstructed the family tree for, and then started asking all these people within the family, Hey, did you have a weird guy who was in your family who was living in California at this time? And then eventually they found him by, by asking Uh. around and then eventually getting there. And then they arrested him and he was found guilty in court based on this information. It was the first time that direct to consumer genomic information was ever considered court admissible. But the fact that the FBI had masqueraded as this person, mm-hmm. I, was, I was completely taken aback. I thought that this was actually misrepresentation. It would be considered fraudulent. And it turns out, after I talked with a constitutional lawyer on this, that it's fully within the FBI's rights to do this if they believe that they're going to be able to catch uh, a suspect. Uh, because what it means, and, and so when this happened to the company or the group where people were putting their, their DNA in, um, for, for this purpose, when they went back and, and the company asked them, said, hey, are you okay with this data being used to solve violent crimes? You know, please you know, let us know. Less than 10% of them actually agreed to it right? Some people thought this was fantastic. They're like, you're going to find killers. And then there's this guy standing on the side that says, yeah, in your family. And it's like, <laughs> but, but a lot of people were just yeah. saying, no, this is, this is. Just yeah,
4: because where awkward. does it stop? I mean, you know, I want crimes to be solved. I mean, you know, we've heard about all these rape kits that sit and never get tested, but I'm sorry. We are living in a current state where we're re- realizing that law enforcement policies have to have some changes. And I'm sorry, but I don't trust that law enforcement offices aren't going to say, "Ooh, how can I, you know, put something on them for a traffic stop?" I mean, I really, you know, if especially if it generates revenue, I don't take uh, solace in thinking that they'll do the right thing.
0: Bernie, any thoughts?
4: I think it's good to solve the cold cases, but I mean, to
1: what extreme? I mean, I think like, and this is like a whole tangential thing, but like them trying to crack into the iPhones and pressuring Apple to release like a back end. I mean, like how far are we going to let that be pushed? Like in a lot of arenas, I don't think it's just in healthcare.
6: It's heard. funny. We're reading the article um, that was sent and I I just kind of shouted out. I was like, this is like Minority Report. You know, do y'all remember that movie where it's like like nearly jumping to conclusions? Um, I actually had already had the thought. I was like, wouldn't it just be convenient if like when babies were born, if we just took their genes and just kind of ran it through the system, then we always had it. And then I was like, that is such kind of an evil thought to have that from infancy, we're tracking whether or not this person is committing a crime. <laughs> And, uh,
2: or whatever, I mean, it's
6: just again, I watch a lot of sci fi, so my brain is constantly going through <laughs> the possibilities. But, um, like, where do you draw the line? We already m- maybe don't have enough lines yep. drawn. So,
0: so. so, Brad, as we, we've got to close, these are really great. Um, Brad, if, if if somebody's listening to this and they're freaking out and they just want to know where you can go for truth in terms of what's the risk. Should I or shouldn't I? Where would you send them?
7: Bland. <laughs> under what? Con- I mean, the problem is under what conditions? If it's about privacy in general, I would say one of the, the better resources is the um, Electronic Frontier Foundation or the Electronic Privacy Information Center, EPIC. I think both of them do a really... Good job of, of collating information about potential threats as well as policy and technology that people are creating to try to instill protection. If you step away from the academic literature and try to get towards some things that are in plain or layman's terms that can be read, uh, I, I think that, that Danny Solov has written some wonderful pieces, as has Mark Rothstein at the University of Louisville. I think if you read what they have to say on News Matters, it's easily to digest, easy to digest. And I believe it's it's pretty level-headed. Well, thank you.
0: As we finish up here, guys, first of all, really a provocative conversation. This I knew that one of the biggest challenges of dealing with privacy is it's far-reaching, and oftentimes there are no answers. There's a reality. And then as, as Brad, I think, eloquently stated, it's a story that's not yet finished. The breadth of data that we have and the ways that we're able to compute against it and the ways that we're joining it are just fundamentally changing almost hourly. So Alyssa and Hannah have a song called Evil in the Water. We do. Yes, you do. I have a feeling it relates to this topic.
5: That I was quite a bit, yeah. Nice segue there, Kevin. What do you think? Well, that song, so that that song is is very personal to me in particular, and came from a whole discussion and kind of lifetime and therapy of processing the hidden things that family does and that is generationally passed down from person to person, especially when you're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Wow. So it's sort of that idea that lies and fear breed more of the same thing and just wanting there to be transparency and vulnerability and honesty instead. Mm. But in order to do that, you have to at some point decide, I'm going to make this really difficult choice for myself to be the person that decides, okay, I'm, I'm going to take one for the team and mm. hopefully help other people start that healing process and that being able to think of something differently. Uh, the ethics question within that is, well, do I tell a specific story so I can call a person out in particular, or do I protect that person because I care about them and their feelings and the rest of their life and their friends and whatever? Yeah. Do I tell everyone who it is or do I write it in a way that it could be you? It could be someone, you know,
0: well, that, that does fit in beautifully. Uh, I, I can't wait for everybody to hear it.
6: The single will be coming out, we're thinking in September. Mm-hmm. So, this this is one of the first times we've shown it to anybody. Yeah. So, thank you yeah. for asking. Thank
0: you for Great. it. I have to say, it took my mood all the way like deep below the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's a little sad, right?
5: It mean, kind of makes you think it yeah. might be. Yeah, it might be. It's, be so it's,
0: the, it's the kind of stuff that Brad's going to love.
5: Good. Perfect. <laughs> no.
2: What may be inside? <sighs> Cause there's e-